I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? JR, I am fired up to be here today. Thank you for having me. I am pumped. Today, we've got Eric Kapitulik. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, so, Merchants of Change, just to give you some context, it's a, it's a show for new salespeople and, and people that might be considering a career shift into sales. And the show really aligns with my mission and our mission at Shift Group, which we, we help former elite athletes and military veterans become elite sales professionals. And all of our guests are former athletes or veterans who have found success in sales. And I think you're our first guest who is both. You played lacrosse at the U.S. Naval Academy, and then you served in the Marine, uh, the Marines for eight and a half years. And, and our structure, we, we like kind of start with that sports military career. And then we talk about the transition into civilian life. And then we talk about some lessons you've learned in things like sales and, and entrepreneurship in, in your case. Does it sound like a good plan? Yeah, let's fire it up. Let's do it. I love it. I love it. Um, so kind of going back, um, we like to start with a really broad question. When, you, when I ask you uh, to recall some of your favorite memories of, of playing lacrosse, where does your mind drift off to? Well, certainly. I, I mean, I was a walk-on. So coming, I only started playing lacrosse my junior year in high school. Um, I, I really have more of a basketball background. Um, and if you can play basketball and at a relatively high level, um, you understand lacrosse. And it's actually easier from uh, seeing and understanding how the offense is run and what you need to do, your defensive positioning. But you don't have a stick, right? So when I started playing my junior year in high school, I think I had a leg up against a lot of people who had just been playing lacrosse their whole life. And it really carries through to today where as the father of an 11-year-old boy, he's a three-sport athlete. And I'm a big believer in playing as many sports as you can for as long as you can uh, for that reason, right? Uh, there's you learn a lot of skills from other sports that can be used for other skills. Anyway, so I started playing my junior year um, and coming out of high school, wasn't recruited for, for lacrosse. It was actually recruited for running. And I went to the Naval Academy and I had told the coach, look, if you want to recruit me, okay, but I think I'm done with my running career. Uh, but I got to the Naval Academy prep school and I made the lacrosse team. I just walked on there. And that's when I met the head coach for the first time, Brian Matthews. And then when I got down to the Naval Academy as a walk-on, uh, made the made the team. And, and making the team as a walk-on, that's, I mean, it's just really special, right? And, and, and then you think, okay, hey, look, I just want to make the team. I just want to make the team. And then I make the team and very consistent with my personality. I'm then like, 
okay, I now I want to get playing time. All right, so now just being on the team is not good enough. I got to get playing time. And then as a freshman, I got playing time. And then it's like, all right, I got to start. I got to start. And then I still remember starting uh, for the first time my sophomore year. And all of those things really stand out. But but ultimately, right, and I think most athletes will say this, regardless of the level you play at, it's the memories are are yes certainly some on the field and certainly some off but the memory is the experience of playing with the guys i got to play with i mean that's the greatest experience 100% it's 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 the team the team the teammate culture i when someone asked tom asked me that question last week we i did the the podcast and I, my immediate answer was the locker room like being yeah. around my my best friends battling together every single day um it's 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 the best part of sports in general um and and i think as i i've met more more and more veterans we get a very similar answer about their their service time as well i i think it's exactly why it's so difficult as difficult as it is to transition from being a high-level athlete, why it's equally difficult to transition as a member of our military for the same reason, because that locker room or the people you serve with are so special and the experiences you have with them are so special and so different than any other experience there is in life it makes the transition very challenging. Totally. And, and and I think it's getting harder and harder because society in general, and even corporate America, I see this is where there's a lot more individualism and, and kind of, you know, um, just selfishness a little bit and, and, and less and less people realize that as being a member of a, a corporate organization means you're supposed to be a teammate first. You know what I mean? You know, Jr. I, I'll, I'll say this. I I don't disagree with you, but the only thing I'll I'll say is that in in my experiences and in, in our at the program, I talked about my son earlier. Um, he's eleven years old, about to turn twelve. It's a football, basketball, lacrosse athlete. I'm very fortunate. I get to coach him, whether as a head coach or as a assistant, in 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 just about every season. And in those experiences have just reinforced what I've seen as the CEO of the program, working with college and pro athletes, and then working in corporate America. And that is the great majority of the kids, the great majority of the parents, they're great Americans, great selfless kids, great parents, selfless parents, trying to teach them the right things supportive of the coach to reinforce that messaging but there is a vocal minority whether it's parents students or you know young young people young student athletes who then grow older and then they enter the workforce and to your point they are just selfish victim mentality somebody else's fault people but they're vocal. And I think one of the things that's happening, and I see it too often, I've had it happen to, to me personally, is 
when that vocal minority becomes vocal, as a leader, you have got to understand where your loyalty lies. And there's too many leaders in these situations, whether it's in corporate America, as coaches at various levels, school administrators who don't want to be leaders. They, they want to be managers. Hey, let me try to keep everybody happy here, right? Somebody comes and says, oh, coach this, coach that. Coach did this, coach did that. Stop. If you don't like the coach, don't have your kid play. Done. But instead, they waffle. Well, okay, I'll talk to the coach. And then they'll come to the coach and say, hey, I don't disagree with you, but just tone it down for this person or, or that person. And that just allows this attitude and these that vocal minority to become even more vocal. They never get shut down. And uh, that, unfortunately, is part of youth sports. And those same parents are producing those individual kids and then young adults that are entering higher levels of athletics and then corporate, the corporate world, who are the people you're explaining? Selfish, undisciplined. And they're still blaming the coach or, or the teacher for it. Right, right. A hundred percent. It continues. Um, and, and, and I like, I think the reason that the program and shift group have so much in common is, is we talk a lot about the importance of, of being a great teammate first before anything else. And like, when you look back, uh, both in your, in your experience playing at Navy, and like serving in the Marines, like what are some of the characteristics of, of your favorite teammates when you look back to both those experiences? you think? Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, as we get older, I mean, as younger kids, you spend a lot of time with people who share what you enjoy doing. So you're on a football team, you spend a lot of time with the other kids on the team who are football players or basketball players or, or whatever, right? Or whatever the sport might be. And, and as you get older, um, that might be true in that, well, we're coworkers, so we spend time together. But, but in fact, who we end up spending most of our time with and who we want to spend most of our time with, as we get older at least, are people who share your value system, right? And share your core values, when in college, when I think about who did I want to spend time with in, in college, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, it was people who did the same things that I did. So so when I looked at a great teammate, it was somebody who worked just as hard as I worked. Th that, that would be probably the thing that stood out the most was if guys didn't work hard, I mean, nobody was going to would would. No lacrosse player on, on the Navy lacrosse team would describe me as the most talented. I can tell you that. <laughs> but they would say I was one of, if not the hardest working member of the team. And I had to be, first of all, if I wanted to see the field, I had to. Um, and, and because of that, that's, that's who I liked, right? I mean, it's a value of mine. It, it's, it's who I like. As, as I matured in, into the Marine Corps and, and, further on, you know, teammates who in our vernacular at the program, we call it disciplined. Do what you say you are going to do. And if you can't, uh, I'm really going to dislike you. 
And and and, and by the way, you're going to hate me too. I mean, this can be a right. two-way streak here. But yeah. but if I can't trust you to do what you say you're going to do, I, I just don't want any relationship with you. And quite frankly, you're not going to want one with me either. So, I mean, we're good. But those are some of the things that I look at as just being great teammates. Totally. A hundred percent. And, and yeah. you, you answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which is, and, and I'm not surprised by your answer as a walk on, like, how would your teammates describe you? You're, you're going to be the hardest, you're going to be the hardest working guy in the room because you have to be just to be in the room. <laughs> you know what I you mean? Know, yeah. And, and in looking back on it now, you know, when my teammates have said it at the time, probably not because we didn't think along these lines. But I think one of the things about being a walk-on is just how appreciative I was of everything. You know, that that would be another characteristic of when I was playing, um, even as a, you know, kind of a 21-year-old who thought that I, you know, was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think I was still very much very appreciative of the opportunity to play college lacrosse. Say I'm I'm the same way with hockey. Like the, there's a level of gratefulness that I don't think yes. some of my some of my friends shared because they were very talented from from the early days, and I I was in the room because I had to work my ass off to get there. Yeah. So when I got in the room, I was pumped to be there. Yes, right, correct, yeah, correct. Yep. I love it. Um, so I want to I want to kind of talk a little bit about the transition and and really because you you went and served after after your athletic career and and this is a really important topic we t- we spend a lot of time on it um and and we try to educate our customers who are companies that are looking to hire the talent that we help train um you you talked about the the team thing being a, a big part of the challenge of the transition out of military life um what like what else would you add to that piece and and how do you think that business leaders that are listening to this right now which is a huge part of our audience how do you think they can help make the transition for these people who give everything to our country a little bit more easier and smoother yeah that's a good question you know I, from from as a college athlete going into the marine corps you know, as a college athlete, you're doing something if you're playing at that level. Now, at least for me, this isn't true, actually, for everybody. There were some college athletes who I don't actually think were passionate about the sport they were playing. You know, they've been playing lacrosse their whole life and only lacrosse their whole life. Then they get to college. They're on a college lacrosse team. And it's interesting because as a walk-on, I ended up starting over a lot of the biggest recruits, high school All-Americans, because they get to college, they're so sick of playing the sport that they never got any better after that, right? right. That was the exact opposite. Well, but but the, the reason why I bring that up is that when I played college lacrosse, I was truly passionate about the sport of lacrosse. I ate, slept, breathed it 12 months a year, okay? Then I transitioned into the Marine Corps and was equally passionate about being the absolute best infantry officer and then special operations officer that I could be. Equally passionate, ate, slept, read books, experiences, sought those experiences out, mentors out, all of those things. I mean, I was all in, all in. and. Then I transitioned from the Marine Corps to, to business school first and, and then into corporate America. And 
that transition, not to business school. I mean, look, you go from special operations in the Marine Corps being cold, wet, tired, and hungry 95% of the time um, to your first class being a 10 a.m. class, right? I mean, it's that's that's not that <laughs> difficult to get used to, right? But but the uh, but then transitioning to corporate America, where now you're waking up early to go to a job that are you all in about? Are you truly passionate? I mean, at this point, I'm 30 plus years old, and it's the first time I'm doing something that I'm not passionate about doing. I talk about it. when I come out of business school out of the University of Chicago, I go work at Goldman Sachs. And I always talk about, well, I worked there for a year and a half, a very long year and a half. And people always, you always get a joke from people about it, right? When you say it, but I'm the first guy to tell you it was a long year and a half for me. It was a longer year and a half for Goldman Sachs. It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were high on Eric Capitulic, right? I mean, like, and, uh, the I was doing a job that I tried to talk myself into loving and I didn't. And I thought, okay, well, even though you're not passionate about this, do your best and you'll make enough money to do the things in life you're passionate about doing. And it just didn't work out that way for me. I did make a lot of money and I could do on these other things. But what I realized was, you know what? Eric Capitulic, you work and you enjoy work, but you're not work. You don't, you're not passionate about this work. And very fortunate. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Uh, so I, I didn't have the requirement to a house payment, college or, or student, you know, you know paying for children and that stuff. And I just made the decision that, look, I'm not passionate about this. I'm going to go and you got two options. One, make yourself passionate about it. And you can do that. You can. And oh, I yeah. think a lot of people have to, and you should make yourself passionate about what you do. And what are we passionate about doing? Things we're good at. So get good at what you're doing. Okay. For me, I had the opportunity and I have these, uh, any sort of, uh, reasons for for not okay i don't like finance but but maybe there's another industry that you do like more and then i can go make myself passionate about it and that's when i started the program i decided that i would start my own company and um it went off from from there but again i would just highlight the idea of the transitions difficult because of I think for most people, they're all in and then they're going to do something and maybe an industry that they're not all in about. To, to answer your second part of your question, though, JR, about, hey, what can business leaders do to make that transition easier? You know, it's funny because uh, I think, at least in my experiences and the people that I served with, they they joined the military because of the challenge of it. So they don't actually want things to be easy. Right. And I think as leaders, you want to be like, okay, what can I do to make it easier for them? When in fact, know your audience. How can I make it more challenging for these people? These, these men and women have spent a life wanting to be challenged. They want to be challenged now. I got to afford them opportunities for them to be challenged. I love that. 
I love that. And, and by the way, like you talk about, you have two choices. I think for 15 years, for me, I made myself passionate about technology and technology sales. And the way I describe it to our, to our candidates is, I, you know, I never lost my passion for excellence. I always wanted to be the best at whatever I was doing. And for most of my life, that was hockey. And then I got into sales and I, and I, and I made myself passionate about sales by, by being passionate about becoming excellent at it. Um, yes. so you, you said it much better than I could. That was perfect. <laughs> yes. Yes. How, so you, you kind of hit the, the founding story on the program. How different does the program look from w- what you thought it was going to be when you first got out of Goldman Sachs versus what it is today? Yeah. I, I am very proud of being the founder of the program. I would be out of business if it were still I. I may have founded it. We have made it what it is. Okay. When, when I started the program, my, I mean, right now, people will always be like, oh my God, Eric, what a, the program, what a great idea. And I always am like, it is a great idea, isn't it? It's not my idea, but it's a great idea. Um, when I when I finished at Goldman Sachs and and transitioned and started the program, my idea for starting the program was I was a volunteer assistant lacrosse coach at a prep school at Belmont Hill outside of uh, Boston, right? And I know, I know Eddie Gallagher, legend, right there, right? Okay, so uh, in my being an assistant or volunteer coach there, we would travel and go to other prep schools. And all of these schools, to include Belmont Hill, had these amazing weight rooms, strength and conditioning facilities, fitness facilities. And they had basically, you know, every day from three to six, they would have some science or an English teacher monitoring the weight room to ensure kids didn't kill themselves. <laughs> and my idea when I started the program was, okay, we can do better than that. I'm going to train strength and conditioning coaches. I'll make them get CSCS certification, so the highest certification they can get. And then I'll train them to be great mentors using some of the things I learned throughout my life, doing very much in the Marine Corps. Uh, and schools will hire us to be strength and conditioning coaches, but on an hourly basis, because in the high school, in high schools, weight rooms are only getting used for a certain number of hours every afternoon. That was my, that was my idea. And in the first year, we did make money doing it First, second, third year. We made money doing it. I think it was actually just first and second year, maybe a little bit into the third year. We made money doing it. Right when I founded the program, though, John Tillman, Coach Tillman, now the Maryland men's lacrosse coach, he had just been named the head coach at Harvard. Coach Tillman was an assistant coach on the Navy team when the last thing I did in the Marine Corps was teach leadership and work in the admissions department at the Naval Academy. Right after my tour in special operations, I showed up at the Naval Academy. I think some lacrosse guys had gotten in trouble. Coach Meade, the head coach called me up and said, Cap, can you come down here and just wear these guys out for a few days? And that's what I did. I just worked out with the team. Okay, now fast forward. I just found the program. The assistant coach on that Navy team is now the head coach at, at, at Harvard. He calls me up and says, hey, Cap, can you come out here? 
and help develop my guys. Great young men, but can you, can we help look at developing their leadership, their teammateship, their toughness? Okay, so I go up there and I just work out with the team for two days. But while I did so at different times during our training, I would call the team captains out to lead some of the exercises with me. And these guys are great young men, smart, obviously, right? They're Harvard, right? So, so great young men, great athletes, very talented, good, good people. But they struggled communicating, effectively communicating, effectively leading their teammates in some fairly what I would have considered basic tasks. And that's where the idea came from, you know, the high, the high school strength and conditioning thing is making money for us, but I think I may be onto something here with leadership development for college athletes. We got a great response from the college athletes. We got an even better response from the, from the coaches. And that's in that first year, we worked with three college men's lacrosse teams, we worked at Harvard first. I, then I called other coaches I played for or against or with three men's teams. In year two, we worked with nine athletic teams. By year three, we were out of the strength and conditioning business and only doing team building and leadership development. And now we work with more than 160 college and pro athletic teams and corporations throughout North America annually. Amazing. Amazing. So you, you kind of fell into it almost. You know, I would say that um, I worked really hard into it. Yeah, that's a better way to say it, for yeah. sure. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, yeah. It, and it was such a good match. On like A lot like me for Shift Group, it's like, I almost feel like it's my destiny to do what, we're do what I'm doing yeah. now. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's great. And it's a great feeling, too. I mean, I really do. Um, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to do what I do and do something that I'm passionate about. But again, I'll tell your audience that I, it's still not like the being a college athlete or in the military. And I had to get really good and work really hard to get good at this. And now I'll become to your point. Like, I feel like, Oh my God, I can't believe I would do anything else in my life. Right. Right. But it takes work. Totally. And, and, you know, we talk about this a lot. Um, and I think my, my background has served me really well. My background in sales as a CEO, um, cause, cause I do a lot of it still. How much do you think of, of your job as the CEO of the program is, is sales? Yeah. Uh, without hesitation, even I know I'm hesitating now, but I'm, the only reason for my hesitation is to say, if you're a CEO and your answer isn't a hundred percent, <laughs> then you're a CEO about to be bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, it's it's either direct sales or doing things that's going to help sales. Right. I mean, it's all sales. Right. Right. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So how did how did you learn to sell? Like, were there were there mentors that helped you or do you like other things? Did you kind of figure it out? Yeah. So giving a lot of credit to Goldman Sachs first coming out of Coming out of the Marine Corps and going to work at Goldman Sachs, Goldman puts you through a six-month training program, which is mostly 
sales or a lot of sales. And there are some things that I learned at Goldman that I teach to this day to all new program teammates that I use myself in, in what I do this morning, what I've been doing this morning. When you and I get done today, I'm going to go do it this, this, this afternoon. And some of those things are this. Number one, sales is, it, it truly is a numbers game. The average person does not say yes to even a meeting with you till, you know, the, the six, seven, eight points of contact. Right on. But most of us will reach out once, maybe twice, and then stop, which means you should find a different line of work. I mean, that is not going to be successful. I, and, and you don't need to be... Uh, an honor roll student to figure it out, right? I mean, you you got to put in the work. You, you got to just stay disciplined, be tenacious, get after it, keep reaching out. So that, that would be one thing that just, just the knowledge of that, right? Number one. Number two is the very famous saying at Goldman Sachs, be long-term greedy. Never make a short-term financial decision at the expense of long-term wealth creation for your clients or for yourself. Great advice. Say no to a client. I'm sorry, I can't do that. That's not what's in your best interest. I'll get somebody who is better at that for you. Wow, how much trust development did you just, where, where you just create, where maybe you don't make revenue today, but making every decision with the client's best interest at heart. Oh my God, how long-term greedy a decision was that? Because it's going to pay you off tenfold by doing so. And third, and, and, and really um, something that has just become part of me and, 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 and part of us at the program is, as I talked about earlier, do what you say you're going to do. Hey, I'm going to get this to you when you and I get off the call. That means you're getting it to them when you get off the call, not the following day where you go, oh, I'm sorry, this came up, that came up. Oh, it slipped my mind. Oh, this, oh, that. Which, by the way, is becoming systemic in American society of, well, I said I was going to do it, but oh, this thing came up or that thing. It's called the victim's mindset. It's becoming systemic in society. Blame other people and other things. No, I said I was going to do this. Here, I'm going to do it. And if you can't, then you can't trust me as a salesperson. And I got to move. If I'm going to be truly successful as a salesperson, I have to move from being a salesperson in this relationship to a trusted advisor. And the way that I become a trusted advisor to you is first and foremost, doing what I say I'm going to do, number one. And number two, and this I, I give credit to Goldman Sachs, I'm going to make every interaction I have with you valuable to you. See, when I pick up the call and try to sell something to you or email you, it's valuable to me. I have to make every interaction valuable to you. That Those things are things I learned at Goldman Sachs, which were I just are genius, life-changing, aha moments that will never leave me. Number one. Number two, all the 
love uh, credit that I can give to a mentor is Rob Hale, the CEO and founder of Granite Telecommunications, billionaire Forbes list, owner of the Boston, one of the owners of the Boston Celtics. What an impact Rob Hale has had on my life. Rob and I serve on the Massachusetts Soldiers Legacy Fund, started by Peter Travato, former UMass hockey player, Boston guy, um, where we pay for college or other educational opportunities for every child of a deceased service member from the state of Massachusetts. Very small board of directors. When I first moved back to Boston, Pete asked me to be on the board. I said yes. Rob Hill was one of those board members. He and I became fast friends. When I started the program, Rob gave me office space and a telephone with a computer and that support when I first started the program. Eric Capitulic is not a self-made man. I am not. Rob Hale, huge help. My girlfriend, now wife at the time, bankrolled us, bankrolled me the first, you know, when I first started the program and made $6,000, I think I cleared in the first year of business, right? So, <laughs> you know, not a self-made man, but but the advice that Rob Hale gave me was uh, two pieces that I, I tell everybody now. Number one, okay, as an entrepreneur, I got a certain picture in my head as to what I want my business to look like. That's good. It's good. You should. But now too many entrepreneurs then spend a lot of money on making their headquarters, office, whatever it might be, look the way they have it in their head. Yeah, but then they got to pick up the phone and call people who they want to make as their clients. And that audience may say, meh, this is what I want. But you've put so much money into making it the way you wanted to make it look that now you're either going to have to shut it down and restart, spend a whole lot more money or you just don't even have that option and you're going to still just keep calling, keep, keep calling, keep calling. And that's not what the market wants. So Rob's advice was great. You have this idea. Okay, now pick up the phone and start calling and be, you know, uh, confident enough in what you want to do to sell it, but not so confident that you're arrogant about it and aren't uh, humble enough to listen to the market. What does the market want? Number one. Number two, don't ever feel badly about cold calling. You call, Never. cold call somebody, and somebody's like, you jerk, I hate you, I'm getting off the phone. You call a CEO, you're wasting my time, I hate you. How dare you cold call me? <laughs> that man or woman, that man or woman, when they get off the call with you, they're either going to pick up their call, their phone, and start cold calling people, or they're not. And as I said earlier, if they're not, because they feel like, oh, my God, it bothers people, it does this, or whatever, don't worry about it, because they're going out of business anyway. So pick up the phone and call. I love it. I love it. Um, that's where it starts. It starts with a call. You're 100% right. Uh, by the way, I, I know Pete very well. Chris, his brother Chris is my teammate in college at Holy Cross. Oh, um, really? <laughs> I, did not, I did not know there was a connection there. I played yeah. men's league with Pete. Yeah, he's a, gr he's a great dude. Yeah, I love he Pete Travato. He's awesome. Um, 
So I want to shift gears. This is a kind of a selfish question, but still important for our audience. We have, like I said, a lot of leaders that, that work with us. Um, and it's about team building, right? And, and I'm asking for myself and I'm really curious to get your take because like you said, you're not a self-made man. You made some really good decisions on who was going to build with you. If you were coaching someone like me, a founder, um, thinking about adding key executives to their team, what's your, what's your guidance look and sound like for that type of decision? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Let me, let me start by saying I really appreciate you highlighting the great decisions I've made on people that have joined my team. Let me be the first person to tell you that I have so, by, by a factor of, I don't even know what, but it's a big number, bad decisions. <laughs> bad decisions, okay? And I think one of the things that has helped the program the most is, well, first and foremost, clearly defining what as me as the founder and ceo the leader the number one leader of the program uh, defining selecting and then defining what my core values are because my core values as the founder and ceo are the program's values that's true for a, a head coach it's it's true for business leaders with whom we work so Select your core values. Three was what we suggest. What your core values are. Define them. What does it mean to be not just selfless? You talked about being selfish earlier, right? So at the program, we're selfless, tough, and disciplined. We're those things because that's who I am. Those are my core values. But selfless, tough, disciplined, any of them. All of us, JR, are a sum of our experiences. All of us are. And based on all these experiences that I have in my life, I have a certain mental picture of what a selfless person is, what a tough guy, tough girl is, what it means to be disciplined. But those are based on my experiences. I have to make sure that I just don't leave it at selfless, tough, and disciplined. I have to define that with the help of my teammates what it means to be program selfless, what it means to be program tough, what it means to be program disciplined. So determine and then define your core values for yourself and then as your organization. And then do everything you can to hire people who are wildly talented. We we have seen in, in America to like, try to minimize the importance of talent, right? Now, Malcolm Gladwell, I think he's an awesome author, um, you know, and obviously incredibly intelligent human being, right? I mean, much yeah. more than me, not that that says much, but but the, the issue is, is that I think, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, some of those things, I think it's helped uh, minimize the importance of, hire people that are really smart and talented at what you do. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really important. Yeah. But too often, whether it's a coach in their recruiting or a business leader in their recruiting, that's where they stop. Just let me get the smartest or the ta most talented guy. And I'm using the universal term guy here, guy or girl. Well, the problem is, is that that guy and girl, they may be wildly talented. And in the program's case, they may not be selfless, tough, or disciplined. And if they're not, 
I'm going to hate them. And they're going to hate me. It's not going to be a good relationship. It won't. And eventually that relationship is going to fracture at some point. So instead, do everything you can to hire people, yes, that are talented, but that share your organization's core values. What we've done at the program is, and I read this somewhere, and I'm not sure where I read it, so, but, but I don't want to take credit for it myself. Um, I'm sorry that I'm just not giving credit to whether it's the book or the author or other business leader who may have told me this, but we all think we're, we, we're so great about our gut reactions. Listen to your gut. No. False. Listen to statistics. Hire somebody. Write down, recruit somebody. Write down why you're recruiting them. What you think of that person. Then six months later, write down what you think of them six months later, a year later. The day they leave your organization. Was your gut correct? Most of the time it's not. Or at best it's 50-50, which means it's not your gut. It's just a flip of a coin here. Okay? So... What we've done at the program, me recognizing, yeah, okay, I've made some good decisions on people I've hired. I've made just as many bad decisions. So instead, what we do at the program is every member of my team, now at the program we're a dozen people, so it can be every member. At some organizations, they can't do that. But I'm going to have as many people at the program interview somebody and work with these people to determine, yes, if they're talented enough. But really, are they selfless, tough, and disciplined enough to be one of us? And we do not do, well, seven people think this, they are, five people don't. Or, hey, Cap, six of us think this way, six of us don't, you're going to be the tiebreaker. Nope. Twelve people, or eleven, and then me. You've gone eleven and oh. They all think you're selfless, tough, and disciplined enough. So me, I'm just going to say you are. But I want to be clear with you. We're going to find out probably in two weeks, maybe even sooner, if you truly are. If you aren't, we will have one conversation about it. One. And then conversation number two is not a conversation. It's simply here are your walking papers. That could be within two weeks from now. Understand this. You don't get six months or a year at the program because for that six months and a year, you're screwing the rest of the team. So the, the leader, a leader's greatest mistake is not who you hire. It's how long you live with your mistakes. We don't live long with our mistakes at the program. Now, let me be clear, because I know I, I sound, there's, even as it's coming out of my mouth, I know I sound like a jerk as I say that. I'm okay with it. I'm, Eric yep. Capitulic is not for everybody. I'm okay with it. Here's the thing, though. I, I understand and I appreciate that it's in the program's best interest to cut ties. It's also in that person's best interest to cut ties. It's in their best interest. Because if you're, they're not selfless, tough, and disciplined, oh yeah, sure, I hate you. Guess what? You hate me too. And you hate your teammates. Because if you're not selfless, tough, and disciplined, only people that are selfless, tough, and disciplined are at the program. So if you don't share our value system, it's not just me. It's all your teammates and all of your teammates to you. It's a bad relationship, and we don't want to be in bad relationships. It's not in our best interest. It's not in your best interest. Now, the flip side of this is, but if you are selfless, tough, and disciplined, 
this will be the greatest place you'll ever work in your life because we don't let people who aren't work here. Putting, having our hiring process like that has, has really, it's still not a hundred percent, but it's made us so much better in the hiring process. And the bigger point of this though is being more disciplined about our firing process. Right. That has catapulted us to a different level from a great teammate perspective here at the program. I, so I read your book and I actually developed our three core values after reading your book. And I never even made the connection of like tying that into the hiring process, but it makes complete and total sense when you, when you think about how you position the importance of those core values. Ours, just to give you a sense, are accountability, coachability, and authenticity. That's, that's our, that's me, right? And that's what I want to go hire for. Deb, you defined those yet? I have. Yep. Yep. How did you define them? Was it just you? Did you have members of your team help you? Yeah, we're a small, we're a small team, only four full-time employees, but everybody, I, I kind of took a first stab and I said, where am I off here, guys? And, and what do we need to add? What do we need to take away? And, and we, I lead every team meeting with that slide that has those, those three core values and the definition of those three core values on it. And then JR, if I could add one thing to that, right? Uh, goals, we all have them. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, you, you got to, <laughs> You don't, you don't, you don't achieve what you want to achieve revenue wise or profit margin wise. You're going out of business. So goals are, are very important, right? I mean, very important. Um, when you accomplish goals, when your team accomplishes goals, I think a couple things. First of all, my personality, and this is a bit getting back to my parents. Uh, I do a lot and I parent a lot of the ways my parents did. There's some things I don't though. Um, and one of the big ones is I don't talk about performance with our kids. I, I don't, I don't, we, my wife and I, but I'm, but I'm the guy getting interviewed here today. I, I don't talk to them about get A's, um, touchdowns. It now our kids may want to talk to me about that. I mean, after a game, dad, did you see that juke move I put on that guy for the touchdown, right? For the tutty, right? Broke his ankles, right? Um, okay. I'll talk to him about it. Obviously he's excited about it, right? Axel's excited about it, my son, but I don't, when he comes off the field, it's not like, Oh my God, dude, sick tutty. If I did that, that's what he knows. Dad values. Dad values me getting A's. I don't, I value you being selfless, tough, and disciplined. I value you working hard. I value you challenging yourself, man. I make a big deal about that. I make a big deal. Now, I bring that up because systemically in a capitalistic society, uh, the achievement of goals, there are systemic benefits for doing so. Bonuses, more, more money, more efficiencies, better lifestyle. There's just efficiencies that, that are systemically built into goal achievement, as there should be. What as a leader you have to look for, though, is having those same types of benefits for teammates who embody your value system, who are being the people that you say they should be. It's got to be both. It yeah. has to be. 
yes, goal accomplishment is going to help you in the short term, but goal accomplishment and value embodiment, core value embodiment is going to help you in every term. Yep. Mate, that makes a ton of sense. And and by the way, that's genius to be considering reward, like talk, emphasizing with your children the, the focus on that versus the outcome. There's like a ton of scientific data out there about what, how that's going to positively impact them over time. Yeah, you know, JR, you know, I had, and, and again, I, I'm so blessed, right? My mom's a school teacher. My dad's a policeman. I grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Connecticut, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't the streets for Eric Kapitulik. I mean, <laughs> I should attain some level of achievement in my life. I mean, I got dealt a good hand of cards to say the least. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, as an example, and it still stays with me to this day, and it's been a very tough challenge for me to overcome, which is, you know, I would finish a high school basketball game. I'd go for 24. That's a lot of points in a high school basketball game. As soon as it would end, my dad would say, ah, oh, man, you missed six of those free throws. <laughs> and now maybe you could say, well, your dad knew his audience and maybe that's the case. But I really grew up with a nothing is ever good enough feeling. Yeah. And uh, it's taken me a lot of maturity and, and, and work to make sure that I separate uh, satisfied and happy. You can, you can be happy without being satisfied. But as a parent, it, it would be a whole lot easier on your kid if you could help instill it to him in a young age, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's true for us as leaders with our children. And we got to remember it as business leaders as well. I don't think a, a lot of companies went out of business during COVID because they couldn't do it. Or, or at the very least, they made their people miserable because they couldn't separate the two. Yep. Don't. <laughs> it, 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 like, recognize great performance. Make sure that we're recognizing behavior even more. 100%. 100%. Eric, there is so much gold in this conversation, man. I've already kept you longer than, than, than we committed to. Um, thank That's you so okay. much. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Any, any parting words for our audience? Boy, Jr. Well, first of all, yeah, thank you so much for for having me. It's a real privilege and honor for me to spend this time with you. I I just think that if, if there's anything um, to to leave your audience with is, you know, you I, you heard in my intro, right? Eight uh, Naval Academy college lacrosse player, um, special operations in the Marines, Iron Man, Mount Everest. It, the the thing that I would highlight to the audience is, um, Dad, all of those other accomplishments, they're they just they're nothing. It, it they mean nothing to me compared to husband, Dad, and I get it as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, business person. Uh, you have certain financial obligations and. You work extremely hard. I mean, oh, man. But I think one of the things that I've done well, and I probably make mistakes, but I but I try to correct it, is uh, I don't lose sight of my priorities. And work-life balance. 
I hate that term. It, it, it makes it seem like, well, if you're working a lot, life sucks. Or if you're, right. or you're doing a lot of life and that's great, well, business sucks. I, I like the idea of it being a c- continuum, right? Where yeah. sometimes in your day and in your life, you are working more. That doesn't mean life sucks. It just means you're working more. Yeah. And other times, okay, it's more life. But th- where, the, where the problem comes in, and the thing that I would challenge your audience is that when you are on life, make it life. Be present. I get it. Hey, look, if you're a brain surgeon, heart surgeon, you're on call, you need to have your phone with you on. Okay, I get it. I understand. Yeah, that's not most of us. Right. You're with your kids. You're with your wife. Shut your phone off and put it away. Be present. You know, we got one shot at the relate. It's it's well documented. The number one thing that makes us happy is the depth of the relationships that we have with the people who mean the most to us. Okay, that's a choice you have to make. Make the right choice. Thanks. As a new dad, as a new dad, Eric, I can't tell you how how awesome that last piece was. So thank you. Oh, I got a good. three and a half a three and a half month old. That was oh, awesome. That's awesome. Oh, good boy, girl, little boy, Jack Butler. Oh man, that's awesome. I got great advice from Mike Murphy, the head coach of UPenn Men's Lacrosse, when my son Axel was just born. He said he's got he's got four uh, kids. Yeah, he's got three boys and a, and a girl. And he once told me, he said, you know, look, you see kind of like older kids and they're playing, like in my case, right? We're having this conversation. I'm talking about Axel playing football this weekend, right? And I get to coach him, right? And, you know, he, he said, you'd always be like, oh, man, I can't wait for my kid to be seven to do this or, or eight. And, and his advice was, Cap, Every day is amazing, and every day is greater than the one before it. They read something, right? When your kid leaves for college, you've spent 90% of the time that you're going to spend with him or her. In this case, him. That's why I use the term him, because of your son. You will spend 90% of the time with your son by the time he goes to college. You'll you'll have spent 90% of the time you're going to in your life with him. That's sobering. That is very sobering. Make it count. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, man. This was incredible. I appreciate you. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for having me. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.